That's it then. The penguins are done. Just like that. Four months of nothing, four games of nothing, and they're gone. And who knows what they'll look like when we see them again. Good Friday evening to you for this special edition of Daily Shot. I wasn't about to wait a day, much less through the weekend, to put together some thoughts on the Penguins' 2-0 loss to the Canadiens earlier today, as well as their 3-1 series loss to the 24th seed out of 24 teams in these unprecedented and strange Stanley Cup playoffs. I have no doubt that this defeat is going to be seen as stunning in addition to disappointing by a lot of people. And I feel there are components to it that are stunning. I also feel, with no small cause, that a lot of it isn't all that surprising. In fact, there were some elements to this that I've been talking about for months and then on through this series. So what I'm going to do with this episode is talk about three things that I expected to occur in this series, and then three things that really I didn't see coming at all. That'll be in the second segment. The the first one, the obvious one, the glaring one, is that Carey Price is, was, and remains the best goaltender in the world. Nobody wants to hear about Carey Price after a loss like this. Fact of the matter is, the Penguins still should have beaten this team. They still should have found all kinds of ways to use talent, skill, experience, depth to overwhelm Price. They didn't. However, still, at the end of the day, Price was there. Price made the big saves. Price made the routine saves. If Price let in one lousy goal in this whole series, I can't recall it, or even a a slightly dubious quality, that's who he is. He's not necessarily the super flashiest guy. He just happens to be the best at the job, and he does the job. He's also always excelled in the few pressure situations that he's been able to get. Meaning, you know, he plays for the Canadiens, so he doesn't make it into the playoffs all that often. He was outstanding. And I sure hope that a lot of the people that were expressing that Carey Price's best days are behind him or that his numbers don't support the common, almost universal view throughout hockey that he is who he is, I sure hope they got to watch at least some of this series to see how he played. I mean, if you think about it, he did have some luck going on, especially in Game 4, you know, the early shot that Sidney Crosby took that went off his noggin, Patrick Hornquist dinging the pipe, coming down the right side early on, and then, of course, in the third period, Sid from point blank off the crossbar. But those don't count. Those don't count. He's not responsible for those. No, you don't want him to let him hit, but he's not responsible for those. He made the saves. He made all the saves 
and more people should have seen that coming. Another one, another facet, number two, that I expected to occur in this game, much more so than in this series, and it was the topic of this morning's daily shot, was that Sullivan would go for Old Faithful. He was going to have the Penguins defend, defend, defend. That was the entire first segment this morning. Even though Sullivan had said no such thing, that's his history. That's what he's always done. The Penguins in the playoffs under Sully have defended first and foremost. I am not here to criticize that approach in any blanket regard because he's wearing two rings. A lot of them are because they took that approach when they faced San Jose and then Nashville and, of course, all the other teams along the way. But I am here to say or to reiterate from this morning that if you take that approach and you're facing the best goaltender in the world, you are running the risk of getting into exactly, exactly the game that I forecast, which is that it was going to stay low scoring and then it was just going to come down to one goal. It was going to come down to one broken play, which is actually exactly what Arturi Lekkonen's winning goal was. I don't know that too many things happened there that were terrible. Latang made an ill-advised pass, but it got through. Brandon Tanev turned to the middle of the rink and gave the puck away, but Teddy Bluger was late on the center zone exit. And then from there, everybody rushes back. Everybody looks at the puck. Paul Byron takes it, makes a beautiful pass in front, back to Lekkonen. Empty netter. He was at the beach and shot into the ocean. That's what happens when you play with that kind of fire instead of, as I had suggested on the show this morning, playing to your strength. Your strength is offense. Go score goals. Go beat the best goaltender in the world. Don't just declare that a draw and hope. That played into Montreal's hands in every way, exactly as I had said this morning that it could. The Penguins evened the table unnecessarily. They didn't need to do that. They did Claude Julien and the Canadiens a huge favor by defending a team that in all candor didn't need to be defended. If they had gone firewagon with these guys to try to put it in more blunt terms, the Penguins run them out of the building. But that's not the precedent that's been set in the past. And that's not the way the head coach and his staff went with this game. And I knew that they wouldn't. And I had a pretty good idea, at least, that it wouldn't work. And it didn't. The third thing that I expected, and this goes back to, like, mid-coronavirus shutdown times, like two, three months ago, 
I was writing and talking a lot about how Mike Sullivan's system isn't easy to just snap your fingers and readopt or reignite. And when I saw this training camp that the Penguins were going through, it was very high tempo, very high spirited. The Penguins showed up in what by almost every account in excellent shape. And right off the bat, they start doing this dumping and chasing that I talked about at the time, which I also didn't understand. It was playing to an opponent that didn't need to be played to. Montreal needed to be shrugged off more than what the Canadians were. Not in an insulting way, but the Penguins needed to play to their own strength, which is scoring, which is offense. And they didn't do that. And as a result, they were going to have to win on their system, which calls for, as we've seen it when it's at its best, and it's a beautiful thing, everyone to be in tight quarters around the puck. Everyone needed to be supporting each other. Along the boards, multiple sticks on the puck. We saw some of that at times through this series. We saw some of that at times through this game. But then go and look at that winning goal again and look how spread out they are on the rink. Look how casual they are. That is not the Penguins at their best. And that is not how the Penguins look when that system is really firing. I expressed concern about this more than any other facet coming out of the coronavirus shutdown. Not Matt Murray, not Jack Johnson, not Patrick Marlowe, not any line symbiosis or anything like that. The number one concern for me, and I realize this doesn't make for the sexiest topic in doing a show like this, but that's not what I'm about. I'm about giving you what I think is the truth. I thought this was going to be the hardest aspect for the Penguins to overcome. When hearing Sidney Crosby tell reporters in Toronto after this loss that he wasn't really sure how to analyze it, that it all happened so fast, I honestly believe that this was the underlying reference. Everything, undoubtedly, to all these guys had to have felt like it was four months of nothing, then two weeks of, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, and then, boom, playoffs. And that system doesn't lend itself to that. Am I suggesting that they come up with a new system? No. There's always ways to modify things and everything else, but no, I'm talking about this system in this set of circumstances. If that sounds like excuse-making, so be it. I'm just sharing what I, what I think. I didn't see the Penguins as not trying. I didn't see the Penguins as not having their hearts in it. I'm sure that's going to be a really common thing, though. I saw them as being way too headless chicken-y, if you will. Because this system always takes time to get up and running. And it wasn't going to be conducive to this. 
Now I say all this, and it probably sounds like I'm trying to do some kind of elaborate self-pat on the back or whatever. I'm also going to give you, after this break, three things that I never saw coming, never could have seen coming, or was just totally wrong about right after this. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Canadians 2, Penguins 0, Canadians 3-1, winners of this best of five series. The Penguins leave the bubble and go back to Pittsburgh without really even technically qualifying for the Stanley Cup playoffs. I know, weird thing. I guess the historians also have to sort out whether or not their playoff streak is now dead, which had been the longest active one in the league at 12 years. I'm going to have to check into that myself. I mean, it seems like they should have qualified, right? Meaning that they qualified for it based on regular season terms. Hmm. The second segment of Daily Shot is always brought to you by our friends at the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank. During normal times, one in seven people in our region are food insecure, including one in five children. Not knowing where your next meal is coming from can be a scary thought. And now with the pandemic, the need for food is that much greater. If you're in need of food assistance, or if you'd like to support the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank's mission of feeding people in need, eliminating hunger in our region, visit pittsburghfoodbank.org, one dollar can provide enough food for up to five meals. As I mentioned in the opening segment, there were some parts of this that I I saw coming, and I wrote about and talked to you about it. There's other parts that I definitely did not see coming that have emerged as a big surprise. And at least one thing that I was flat out wrong about. I'm going to give three numbers on this one, too. The first one was Montreal's dedication. Couldn't have been more wrong about this. I saw the Canadiens as a team that would be coming into this tournament with found gold with nothing to play for. Zero. No one even back home would be interested in the Canadiens advancing because I'm sure they all would rather have that 12.5% chance in the NHL draft lottery Monday at getting Quebec native Alexis Lafreniere the consensus number one pick in the coming draft. As it is, the Penguins, of course, now get that 12.5% for better or worse. The Canadians came in inspired They came in visibly motivated 
energetic, physical, and I know we're not allowed to talk about physical in hockey anymore, but hey, it's there. It's a real thing. Shea Weber came in bowling people over from the very first shift, and we don't even think of Shea Weber that way. Brendan Gallagher was in everyone's face relentlessly. Yoel uh, Armia was no different. They had a bunch of guys that were like that. They had a fire. I don't know. I can't even guess what Claude Julien did to light that fire because these guys were so far out of the playoffs that they couldn't even have been picturing at any point during the NHL's early shutdown discussions about a possible playoff format that they could conceivably be a part of it. So these guys not only are you know, done with the regular season, but what motivation would they have had to stay in shape? Think about it. Who would care if the Canadians came back as the 24th seed and lost three games in a row? Not even in Montreal. Believe me on that. Not even in Montreal would they care. The expectations for that team were so low. How they did that, where they found that motivation, I don't know. Full credit to them, full credit to their leadership, full credit to Julien. Above all, in this regard, I'm going to say full credit to Shea Weber. Because this is a guy, whoa, I mean, you will remember when the Habs traded P.K. Subban to Nashville for Weber and the outcry. It wasn't even just there. It was across the hockey world. Oh, how the Canadians got robbed, and I can't believe they did this and whatever else here. And since then, P.K. just keeps on moving to other teams, and Weber performed the way he did in this series. Full credit to them. And all the low marks to me for having underestimated that. Two, I'm not sure I saw the Canadiens as being this fast. That's not to say that they should have been able to beat the Penguins. It's not to say that it was the number one factor. I'm just saying I didn't see it coming. I should have. Arturi Lekkonen who scored the winning goal, was just one of several Canadians who had a big impact on this series by skating wide, by, by swinging wide. Paul Byron was another. Byron did something I don't know that I've ever seen anybody do in this series, and that was beat, and decisively so, John Marino along the boards to set up a big goal in Montreal's Game 3 win. One that everybody, by the way, blamed Jack Johnson for. The goal was 100% on John Marino. Paul Byron was good like that. Jesperi Kotkaniemi is another guy. I mean, I knew he could fly. I didn't just put him and everybody else together in the same bracket and say, okay, here's a fast team. Brendan Gallagher, of course, can still go. Thomas Tatar, nobody's ever questioned his offensive credentials. It's what he does at the other end. But I thought Tatar was not only good offensively, other than game two, I also thought he was diligent and nasty at times even. 
So they, they, they came and they created enough problems with their speed that they forced, rightly or wrongly, I think wrongly, Mike Sullivan to have the Penguins adjust to them. Which should never have happened. I don't mean to keep repeating that, but that never should have happened. You don't adjust to the 24th seed. You just take it to them. Nonetheless, the Canadians were fast. Their defense wasn't super mobile, but it was mobile enough. And Jeff Petrie obviously was mobile enough to produce not one, but two game-winning goals. Both on very good shots. Number three comes in, and this one was about the Penguins. I never, even after watching and covering that training camp, and after watching and covering those scrimmages, could have imagined that the Penguins' power play would have laid a massive collective egg like this in a series. Some of that was on price. Some of that was the Penguins looking for that perfect pass. And you know what? They hit on a couple of those perfect passes. Malkin to Hornquist. Rust to Zucker. But you're not going to make a living. You're not going to feast on any kind of power play by hoping for perfect passes, by hoping for passes that dissect a populated box. And that's what the Penguins did. The power play, no matter what, could never get into shoot-first mode. It would for a little bit. It would for short stretches, like after Sullivan and everybody else, I'm sure, on the bench was ripping everyone for not shooting. And you'd see it switch for a little bit, but it wouldn't stay that way. It wouldn't stay that way. If the Penguins weren't going to capitalize on power plays on any kind of consistent basis, they were never going to be able to take control of this series. And you know what, my friends? They never did. They never did. Not even with the Game 2 victory did it ever feel like the Penguins had any kind of authority over what was going on. They were reacting to everything. Montreal was always the aggressor. And all that happened in games three and four is that started to show up on the statistics sheet too, including the advanced stats. Montreal had the shot attempts. Montreal had the possession. Montreal had the zone time. Because they just kept taking charge, and the Penguins couldn't do it. To my mind, that starts with the power play. When you have a team that is built on and around superstars, the superstars have to score forever and ever, including in Mario times. When the superstars did their scoring, when they did their greatest damage, it intimidated the most. It was on the power play. Because now the other team gets scared to take a penalty. They get scared to put their hand on you or their stick on you, and you get that much more room five on five. By not scoring on the power play. Heck, by not threatening on the power play. My goodness, did you see the power play to start this game? To start game four? 
in two full minutes. The Penguins never once set up. I'm not talking about threatening or moving the box or, you know, generating shots for crying out loud. They never set up in the Montreal zone. Most of it was spent back in their own zone. You can blame all you want this player or that player and Jack Johnson stinks and Justin Schultz had a rotten game, which he did. It'll be his last game with the Penguins, if that's any consolation. But the bottom line is your power play comes down to your very best guys. It comes down to Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, Chris Letang, principally. I'm not even going to throw in Jake Gensel. I'm sorry. He's coming off a major injury. This was his first hockey since Christmas. I'm laying off of Gensel completely. But the rest of these guys were healthy and hale and energetic and motivated and we won another cup. Remember the stuff those guys were saying to me in training camp when I brought it up? About the fourth cup, about the legacy. The power play needed to get this done. I did not see that coming. I was wrong about that. I did not see the power play doing this, meaning nothing. I wonder if the whole series wouldn't have been different. Right from the very beginning, if the Penguins had just put one or two power play goals in, started to feel a little bit better about themselves. But they didn't, and they don't. And their power play for a long time now has been a difficult one to piece together, in large part because the three stars that I just cited they don't exactly slot into specific spaces on a power play. That has to be addressed. There's going to be a lot of stuff getting addressed in the days to come by people like me and you, and infinitely more important, by the coaching staff and ultimately Jim Rutherford. Big decisions have to be made. Big thoughts have to be thought. Stuff about blowing up the core, uh, about Latang, about Malkin even. The team is not young. The team doesn't have a whole lot in the way of young. And the young that it has, it tends not to use. There are a lot of things that have to change as it relates to this franchise after this. Is that going to be a gross overreaction to a best of five? We'll see. We'll see. I don't think you make that decision based on the best of five. I think you make it based on a much broader scope. But there have been other reasons to feel this way about this group. There have been other reasons to look back over the past three years and the Penguins losing 11 of their last 12 playoff games and hardly scoring any goals in those dozen games. Where it's fair to consider much bigger implications of what just happened here. Best thing everyone can do, Rutherford included, is to just kind of step back from it right now. I wouldn't be thinking anything rash. I certainly wouldn't be acting upon anything rash. But putting everything on the table, oh, you bet. You bet. It's the fastest team sport in the world, and it doesn't leave much room for success. 
that aren't fast. And the Penguins don't have nearly enough of that right now as a 24th seed just showed them and just exposed. Thank you so much for listening to this one. The regular Daily Shot will be back, as ever, Monday morning. Your front door, your car, your gym locker, your bike, your computer, your window, your gun. Safety is a habit. Every day you lock and secure your home, car, and everything you want to keep safe. Gun safety and responsible storage are no different and the best way to help prevent accidents, misuse, and theft. If you own a firearm, it's your responsibility to store it safely when it's not in use. Choose a system that works for you. Cable locks, lock boxes, and gun safes are some of the most effective ways to protect your family and keep firearms secured. Learn more about how to keep guns safe and secure and find out how to get a free firearm safety kit. Visit projectchildsafe.org. That's projectchildsafe.org. If you have a firearm, own it, respect it, and secure it. Brought to you by the National Shooting Sports Foundation and the Bureau of Justice Assistance.